This is Alex Grant with the Comic Book Historian Podcast. Jim and I, as well as Danny Bear, presented a panel at the Comics Arts Conference in San Diego Comic-Con 2018. The title of the panel was Attorneys versus Historians Who Authors the Authorship Narrative. The panel was originated by Jim Thompson, who then recruited Danny and I to bring certain aspects and particular characters and creators. This is more of an academic presentation at the Comic-Con, a little bit different from our normal podcast, but we thought that it would be valuable to air as a podcast episode. This was originally presented on Thursday, July 19, 2018 at the San Diego Convention Center. And with the help of our friend Jamie Coville, who provided and recorded the MP3, we're able to play it for you folks today. Hi, I'm Jim Thompson, and I want to introduce the panel, or I'm going to have them introduce themselves starting uh, with Danny. I'm Danny Bearer, known as Daniel Bearer in the legal world. I've been a practicing attorney for close to 28 years, and I've been attending Comic-Con since regularly since 1989 and a couple before that, and I've been collecting comics for about 40 years. So occasionally the legal and comic book worlds intertwine. In terms of practice, I mainly do appellate law, which means arguing on paper instead of arguing at trial, and it means I get to tell my stories in writing rather than telling them by putting together witnesses. I'm Alex Strand. I run a website called comicbookhistorian.com, and Jim and I are admins on the Comic Book Historians Facebook group. Like uh, Danny, I've been collecting comics most of my life, and comic history has become a, a passion. I've gone to seven San Diego Comic Cons in a row so far. My name is Mark Greenberg. I'm a professor of law at Columbia University in San Francisco. I'm the author of a book called Comic Art, Creativity, and the Law. I represent comic artists, comic writers, a variety of different contexts. I'm a participant in the Comic Book Law School panel that runs uh, all three days here at Comic Con. And I'm kind of an active participant in this uh, comics universe, representing clients both in transactional matters and occasionally, if it's necessary, in litigation. And I taught uh, for Duke University for 15 years in teaching uh, genre as it applies to both film and comics. I am also a uh, divorce attorney in Los Angeles. So, if anyone needs anything. (laughs) Speaking of which, when I'm not teaching or buying uh, comics or talking about comics, uh, I do divorce people, and it pays bills, and it buys, buys my comics. But divorces are often described as cases of he said, she said. Once he says and she says, then the judge decides who said it correctly and who he's going to believe or she's going to believe. Comics history is often similar to this. More often, it's he said versus he said, but nevertheless. And the historian ultimately decides which narrative to go with, just as the judge does. That's not the only similarity, though, and that's what we're going to talk about today. In the divorce, when it's he said, she said, the lawyers help frame or refine those narratives from the sidelines, often whispering in the ears at the witness stand and and, uh, also in in preparation. Uh, Our point today is that there are often also lawyers on the sidelines in comics history in their narratives as well, directing or refining what he said and what he said. Uh, However, in court, the lawyers are in plain sight. In comics history, 
Only the shadow knows where the lawyers are lurking. Hayden White, in his influential meta-history of the historical imagination in 19th century Europe, 1973, and this is the academic side, not my lawyer side, observed that the, the history as a plenum of documents that attest to the occurrence of events can be put together in a doc, number of doc, different and equally plausible narrative accounts of what happened in the past. As Roland Barthes says, narrative is simply there like life itself, international, transhistorical, transcultural. What this means is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of different narratives, and in doing a, a history of comics, there's not one history. There are multiple histories in a, in a postmodern sense. Like his strange husbands and wives, co-creator writers and artists have their own narratives. Lawyers sometimes refine those narratives or push favorable counter-narratives, as I said. Historians, the people that are writing the history, create and shape these narratives into a narrative of history, and then we create our own narratives as readers. We're going to start by examining three examples of these comic narratives that become and turn into comic history. But... Before I turn it over to Danny to talk about uh, Bill Finger and Bob Kane and Batman, I wanted us to take a quick look at something as a bit of an exercise. This is from True Fact Comics number five, I believe, uh, or Real Fact Comics number five, the true story of Batman and Robin, how a young Bob Kane is developing the notion of Batman in his mind from, from early on, where he's having a, a childhood friend dress up in a bat costume, and he's thinking about Batman even like when he's in school, and it goes through systematically every aspect of the Batman mythology and gives Bob Kane full credit for thinking of it, even to the points of Robin, even to the points of the Joker, all of the villains. Everything comes purely from the mind of Bob Kane. And so that's interesting, I mean, because we all know it's false, but it's, it's also interesting because you have to think about why. You know, why was this published? What was going on in everyone's, in DC Comics' head that they did this? And in each panel, you can think somebody made a decision, we should include a Joker panel, we should include a Batmobile panel to give it ownership on the record in a, in a sort of a way. So with, with that said, I'm going to turn it over uh, to Danny to go to the next topic. Certainly. For decades, the general line was that Bob Kane was, as in that real fact story, the sole creator of Batman, and that was not an accident. Bob Kane had a contract with DC Comics and National Periodical Publications, it's his previous name, that was much better than that that Siegel and Schuster had concerning Superman. And the stories of how that have happened, they're conflicting and we're not going to get into them, but the important thing was a writer named Bill Finger had a role in the creation of Batman that you'll hear more about later, but suffice it to say, without him, we would not have the Batman that we know and love today, and certainly not the Batman that was in this show. Now, this show is being put together around 1965. Around 1965, Bill Finger came to one of the very early Comic-Cons. The Comic-Cons were being held in New York. Afterwards, Jerry Bales, the father of comics fandom, Roy Thomas, and some other fans, big-name fans, went to Finger's Greenwich Village apartment and spoke with him. And afterwards, 
Jerry Bales wrote a, an article for the Amateur Press Association, Kappa Alpha, that Bales published called A Finger in Every Plot. Clever. And in it, he talked about how Bill Finger was the unsung hero of Batman, not only writing most of the early Batman stories, along with other writers such as Gardner Fox, but also creating several key elements of the Batman legend. Around that time, Batmania, which was a fanzine published by Bill Joe White, Tom Fagan was the assistant editor, and this was the first fanzine, I understand, devoted to a single comic book character, and it was authorized by DC Comics. They allowed it to be published. They started mentioning that a fellow named Bill Finger had been to the 1965 Comic-Con, and that he had talked about having a role in the creation. They talked about the Jerry Bales article, and they said a little bit later they were going to have an open letter from Bob Kane. So a few of the editorials for Batmania said, we're going to have this letter from Bob Kane coming, then saying, we're going to put off this letter from Bob Kane for a while. According to Bill Shelley's article about this letter from the 1998 Alter Ego issue, uh, volume two, number three, there was an attempt between Bob Kane and Bill Finger, according to Finger, to try to work out informally some of the points that were made in Jerry Bale's article about Bill Finger crea or creating key elements of the Batman legend informally. I don't know if lawyers were involved or not. They waited at Batmania to hear from Finger or Kane about whether this had been worked out. They didn't hear anything. So in the last issue of Batmania that Bill Joe White published, which was number 17, they finally published the open letter from Bob Kane. And I'm just going to read a few excerpts from it. It's addressed to Bill Joe White, the publisher. Now, Bill Joe, I'd like to emphatically set the record straight once and for all about the many, quote, myths, unquote, and, quote, conjectures, unquote, that I read about myself and my creation, Batman, in your fanzine and other publications. I can only call all the stories I read about myself conjectures, because most of them are written without my advice or consent, and therefore cannot be entirely the truth. For how can an article about me or the Batman be the true story when I am not consulted or interviewed? It only stands to reason, then, that the writers write what they think is the truth by receiving their information from second and third parties in fragments until what I read is so distorted that I cannot believe that the person they are talking about is myself. Moving on a bit. The myth. Bob Kane is not the sole creator of Batman. I've heard this a thousand times in my lifetime. That Batman was really created by... Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, Carmine Infantino, Jack Schiff, Julie Schwartz, my publisher, etc., etc., and my housekeeper. The truth all hogwash. I, Bob Kane, am the sole creator of Batman. I created Batman in 1939, and it appeared, if memory serves me correctly, in Detective Comics as a six- or eight-page story, and I signed the first script, Robert Kane. I read your article that you sent to me, If the Truth Be Known, A Finger in Every Plot. This wasn't Bill Joe White's article, it was Jerry Bale's article, but oh, whatever. And it seemed to me that Bill Finger has given out the impression that he, and not myself, created the Batman, as well as Robin, and all the other leading villains and characters. This statement is fraudulent and entirely untrue. 
That is myth. And I quote an excerpt from the article written by Jerry G. Bales. The cowl and cape, the utility belt and gauntlets were all Bill's contribution. Also further down the article, and again I quote, Bill also created Robin, of course, but also Commissioner Gordon, who appeared in the first Batman story, Alfred, the Penguin, the Kellerman, etc., etc. The only proof I need to back my statement is that if Bill co-authored and conceived the idea, either with me or before me, then he would most certainly have a byline on the strip, along with my name, the same as Siegel and Schuster had as creators of Superman. However, it remains obvious that my name appears on the strip alone, proving that I created the idea first and then called Bill in later after my publisher okayed my original creation. Let me put this in context. Bob Kane was the one who decided that only his name would go on the strip. That was in his contract. He is now citing that as proof that Bill Finger had no involvement. We have a fancy legal phrase for this kind of argument. It's called Ipsy Dixit, which literally means he himself said it, and figuratively means I'm citing myself. <laughs> Mr. Kane goes on, attention Jerry G. Bales, the self-appointed authority on Batman. If Bill Finger created Batman as you wrote, where's Bill Finger's byline on my strip? It is conspicuous by its absence. So, going down a little bit more, aside to Jerry G. Bales, I ought to sue you for misrepresentation and distortion of the truth about your, quote, finger article, unquote, that blatantly intimates that Bill Finger was the true creator behind Batman and not Bob Kane. Your article is completely misleading, loaded with untruths fed to you by Finger's hallucinations of grandeur. May I say to you, Mr. Bales, that before you wrote so smugly and assuredly about Bill Finger being the real creator and two to four behind the Batman for publication, don't you think you should have double-checked your information back to me so I could verify and clarify Bill Finger's comments? We have a legal phrase for the sort of argument where you say something blatantly false and then challenge the person who's counter to you by saying, I'll sue you. It's called chutzpah. <laughs> it's called what? Chutzpah. If you want the definition of that, look at Leo Rosten's The Joys of Yiddish. It's a legal definition. So, we don't know whether there was a lawyer involved in writing this article, or writing this open letter, along with Bob Kane, or not. But a clue to why it came out, besides Mr. Kane's ego, is later in the article, or the letter, where he talks about this new exciting show that's coming out in the winter of 1966, Batman. Now, there's potentially fame and fortune from Batman, and there's also an incentive for Mr. Kane to maintain that he is the sole creator. And that is so that he gets a card at the end of the credits that says, based upon the characters created by Bob Kane and all the fame, fortune, merchandising, etc., that that conveys. And incidentally, he wrote in to Mr. Dozier saying, the producer saying, I really like that card. Can you make it stay on the screen longer? So the ultimate result is this really didn't go much farther in 1965. In 1973, Bill Finger passed away. Before he passed away, however, 
he did have his one public credit associated with Batman, and that was that he co-wrote a two-parter for the Batman TV series starring the Clock King, which had all these Bill Finger trademarks, like giant props and giant clocks come to life. And he got pictured on screen the credit that perhaps Bob Kane feared most, but perhaps one he feared even more was a few years ago, Bill Finger's family and DC did come to an arrangement where Bill Finger got some credit, and so we got the credit that we see from the 2016 movie, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Jim? Thanks. So as I did with Detective, uh, with Batman uh, comics, I'm going to do here and show another one. This is... Uh, this is the story of the origin of Captain America and who created it. And as we go through that, we snap and we know that it's actually Martin Goodman who created Captain America. This is Stan Lee telling all about how his, his relative created Captain America. And uh, that he assembled, he called in a bunch of writers and, and asked them to uh, come up with the story. He had the nation's top writers and artists. And finally, one character was chosen. Captain America, Citadel of Liberty, and then there had to be more conferences and all of that, leaving out the names uh, Kirby and Simon all together. So it's, it's, it's basically Captain America shaking hands with Martin Goodman. And when Martin Goodman died, the New York Times had a, its obituary that actually said that he invented characters like Captain America and Spider-Man. <laughs> It then, a couple days later, issued a correction saying that uh, they were wrong. Apparently, uh, Goodman only invented Spider-Man and not Captain America. Uh, so that's a narrative, and that's what we're that's what we're talking about. It's not going to be the the narrative that history finds it, 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 it publishes most of the time. And that goes between Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, and this would be the the first picture that Joe Simon says that he, he sketched and gave for his pitch for Captain America, and which was used in the, in the, first, the first story in 1941. Simon and Kirby only produced 10 issues of Captain America for timely comics before they were actually let go by the publisher for what they thought were contract. Well, they didn't have contracts, so you can't say a contract breach, but for working uh, for someone else. Simon had said subsequently in a lawsuit, I'm not sure if it was a deposition or, or other court papers, but he said that he sold the Captain America stories too timely for a fixed page rate plus a 25% share of the profits of the comic books. There was no written contract. Simon acknowledged that he, well, what he did was in 1967, he filed a lawsuit in the South District of New York. He sought the, and he had filed another one in, in 66. He sought the court to declare that uh, to have the sole right to copyright renewal under the Copyright Act of 1909. Uh, like I said, he had previously filed in New York State Court under unfair competition and misappropriation of his state law property. Though in the 67 case, uh, the party settled. As part of the settlement, uh, Simon acknowledged his contributions were worked for hire, and he assigned any and all rights, title, and interests that he may have had too timely. What's interesting about that is the back and forth between Kirby and, and him and why, why that took place. 
So in the autobiography comic book Makers, Joe Simon recounts his creation of Captain America. And he says, quote, it was a time of intense patriotism. Children played soldiers, shooting war toys at imaginary soldiers. Wouldn't they love to see him lambasted in a comic book by a soldier, a meek, humble private with muscles of steel and a colorful star-spangled costume under his khaki army uniform? Wouldn't we all? He describes, very similar to Jerry Siegel talking about the night that he spent and emerged from his house or from his bedroom with the notion of of Superman. He says, I stayed up all night, uh, Simon says, I stayed up all night sketching the usual athletic figure, mailed armor jersey, bulging arm and chest muscles, skin-hugging tights, gloves, boots, flapping and folded beneath the knee. I drew a star on his chest, stripes from the belt to a line below the star, and colored the costume red, white, and blue. I added a shield. As a child, I had been hung up on shields. The design seemed to work. The muscles of the torso rippled gallantly. He talks a lot like that. Under the red and white stripes. There was one thing bothering me, though. He had to have a companion. Then he goes on and explains how he came up with with Bucky. I wrote the name Super American at the bottom of the page. No, it didn't work. There were too many supers around. Captain America had a good sound to it. There weren't a lot of captains in comics. It was as easy as that. The boy companion was simply named Bucky after my friend Bucky Pearson, a star on their high school basketball team. Like the Batman cartoon I showed at the very beginning, it seems like he's covering each and every aspect of the Captain America legend and making sure that it's all coming from his head and nothing to do with his partner, Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, in an affidavit at the time in 1966 uh, or 67, during the lawsuit, Marvel had him address this, most likely by saying, hey, Joe Simon is taking all the credit for this and we need an affidavit from you. So Jack Kirby said, quote, I believe Joe Simon was an editor at the time in charge of production of the comics magazine. I was hired as an artist to work full-time on a regular salary to help create comic magazines and characters. The offices at that time were in the McGraw-Hill building. There was no set comic characters as such at Timely at the time I was hired. They were created by us to produce the comic magazines. Many of the characters were not in existence at the time and had to be produced from the top of their heads. The characters that were becoming the strongest were the Superman-type characters. These were the strongest-selling types as the country was beginning to be in a patriotic stir. They were saleable. Discussions took place practically every day on the basis creation of characters and the framework in which to present them. What types of villains would they need to face the personalities involved and the type of gadget to be used? The characters began to evolve from those discussions. There were sketches made of the characters in their costumes, and these were changed and modified until they assumed what we considered the correct appearance of the product we sought. We used Hitler and the Nazis as perfect villains. There was also a matter of remolding a character, and then he he goes into the change in Captain America's shield from that shield to the circular one. In the course of the discussions, we first evolved a main character and then began to build around him. I suggested the use of a sidekick whom we named Bucky. Joe designed the type of lettering to be used on the Captain America cover. It was the only thing I couldn't do. All my work for Timely was basically superhero-oriented. The general outlines for Captain America we worked out together. There were times when I would make up with a theme that we both thought would make a good story, and I worked it out in its entirety. 
Joe was more preoccupied with other things as production editor, but sometimes he would suggest a story which I would work out. Joe was very busy and didn't have time to do any himself. Sounds very much like the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby narrative that we're going to hear about from Alex. What I think is, is really interesting about it is when you get into the, the whys on this, because Marvel had a strategy at the time when Joe Simon is suing, where because he's saying that he was the creator and it was not work for hire, what happens is that they say, well, even if that's true, Jack Kirby was a co-creator. So Marvel, unlike any other time that they'll do it, they're actually pushing Jack Kirby as the co-creator of something rather than saying he just he was just the artist. And so they have him do this affidavit taking co-credit for it because it directly impacts the pending lawsuit. So this is, again, where it doesn't come into traditional histories, as we'll get to when we get to the next section, but it's clear that it actually is all about legal maneuvering on, on both sides, basically. And now uh, to uh, skip in time a little bit and to continue with Marvel. I'm talking about who created the Fantastic Four, Stan Lee versus Jack Kirby, and how that factors into Marvel's ownership of the characters. This is a picture of Stan and Jack in the 60s, and although they're chummy, they have different working arrangements with Marvel Comics at the time. Stan Lee was a fully employed editor-in-chief on salary, and Jack Kirby had a work-for-hire arrangement, so they have very different legal situations while they're working for Marvel at the time. And we see the very first issue of the Fantastic Four, and there's a byline right when you see the four characters, and it says Stanley and Jack Kirby. So there is an authorship from both men listed right in front of our eyes in that first issue. But although they are listed side by side, and say who wrote it, who drew it, uh, we know some of those things now, but it doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't really exhibit how different their legal situations were working for Marvel at the time. But there is a, a co-creatorship implied there. Then fast forward, to 1966, and Stanley was interviewed at the Chicago Sun-Times, and he was speaking a bit more collaboratively. He was saying, we were creating fairy tales for adults. And when you look at the credit on the Hanna-Barbera Fantastic Four cartoon, it says at the very end, based upon an idea by Stanley and Jack Kirby. So this is, again, a very collaborative statement. Well, what's uh, interesting then is in 1970, this is two years into perfect filming chemicals buying out of Marvel Comics from Martin Goodman, um, Jack Kirby leaves Marvel, and we see that in the last comic collector, he says that the Fantastic Four was my idea, that it wasn't a co-creatorship, and he goes over to DC Comics, so then we fast forward a little bit more, and Martin Goodman left his publisher's seat in 1972, and perfect filming chemical chooses... Uh, Stan Lee to be the publisher instead of Martin Goodman's son, Chip. And in 1973, a year later, Foom number one comes out, the fanzine from Marvel that Jim Stranko made. And it, read, it writes that he created the Marvel Age of Comics, with no mention of Kirby there. And that Lee and Marvel have since become synonymous. Then, a year later, Stan Lee releases Origins. Uh, in 1974, and he writes that I had a talk with my wife, I had a midlife crisis, uh, Martin Goodman mentioned the Justice League of America, why don't you create a team of superheroes? And so he writes there that he wrote a detailed first synopsis for Jack to follow and visualize, and quote-unquote, the rest is history. 
So there's this interesting maneuver here where, although he was saying Lee and Kirby in the 60s, once he leaves, I think to help solidify perfect film and chemicals ownership over the characters, if they can keep Stan Lee happy, who had a who was an employee salary relationship with Marvel at the time, they can keep him happy with a permanent job and a nice position and good pay, then he will continue to keep perfect film happy by stating he was a creator and that helps tighten their hold on the on the characters of Fantastic Four and other characters that follow. And that essentially does cut Jack Kirby out of the action, which with Jack Kirby not being around at the time, maybe that adds a little context of how safety felt doing that. And now in 1975, Jack Kirby returns to Marvel, and he says, once working at Marvel, that Stanley and I shared ideas and laughs, and there's a bit of more of a collaborative statement again. So with Jack, it seems like when he works for Marvel, he speaks a bit more collaboratively, but then when he leaves Marvel, it's more like the Fantastic Four was his, and that's all there is to it. In 1978, they made the Silver Surfer graphic novel together, Stanley and Jack, so they worked together again. And he said that he always enjoyed working with Stan, and that it was a successful team and a collaboration. So again, it's more of a co-creator type of discussion there. Later on that year, Jack Kirby leaves Marvel for animation, and in the 80s, a lot of the comics say Stanley presents on a lot of the comics. So then in 1986, New World Cinema buys... It buys Marvel Comics, and what's interesting is then a year later, Stan Lee says Jack Kirby thinks he created these characters because he drew them. And I think a statement like that helps, again, solidify the new corporate leadership's hold on the characters in much the same way that it did when uh, Perfect Film and Chemical had just bought it. So there's a symbiosis that happens between Stan Lee and Marvel, and if they can keep each other happy, then the money keeps coming in. In 1990, there was the Comics Journal 134, the Gary Groff interview. A lot of people quote that. But Gary Groff asked, hey, Stan says that he created the name of the Fantastic Four. And Jack Kirby says, no, he didn't. I came up with the Fantastic Four. Then Groff asked, well, Stan says he wrote a detailed synopsis for you to follow. And Kirby says, I've never seen that synopsis. That's an outright lie. So now in 1991, we'll backtrack. In 1989, uh, Revlon buys. Uh, Marvel from New World Cinema, and then a year, a couple years later, their chief executive, Ronald Perlman, takes Marvel public. And so there's a lot of money coming in. And it, in Fantastic Four 358, Stan Lee writes, here is a, a copy of the original synopsis. He printed out in the issue. And it, above it, he writes, here's a synopsis that I've been talking about since 1974. And this is the one that I wrote when I dreamed up of the Fantastic Four back in 1961. So I think that, again, helps. It has that function, again, of solidifying the new corporation's hold on the characters. Money's coming in from going public, and Stanley's happy and Marvel's happy. And it also acts as a rebuttal to Jack Kirby's narrative that he never saw any sort of synopsis. So then in 1994, Jack Kirby dies. And then in Fantastic Four 400, in 1995, Jack Kirby writes, or Stan Lee writes, that he remembers the day that both Jack Kirby and him created Fantastic Four. So it's a big inconsistency and likely a guilt reaction of some kind that he felt bad and he threw that out there. So fast forward about 14 years, in August 31st, 2009, Disney buys Marvel. And probably not coincidentally, the Jack Kirby estate, two weeks later, 
filed suit to go after ownership of the Marvel characters. And Martin Toberoff, the lead attorney for the case, representing the Jack Kirby estate, subpoenas Stanley and says, how do you reconcile the fact that at one time you say you created it yourself and then at other times you co-created it? And Stanley says, and I quote, I tried to write these knowing Jack would read them. I tried to write them to make it look as if he and I were just doing everything together to make him feel good. And so by doing that, with all the attorneys there and all the money there and all the Marvel people really keeping a close eye on it, again, Stanley keeps true to form like he did back in 1974, that if he denies any sort of creator authorship from Jack Kirby, then he helps tighten Marvel's hold on the characters. This is basically the role he's been playing, as well as promoting the Marvel brand, which everyone's fallen in love with. So that case did not make it, and Kirby State uh, did not win ownership. It got appealed a couple times, and it kept losing. The main reason was due to Jack Kirby's work-for-hire relationship. And in 2014, they tried to take it to the Supreme Court, and Disney essentially settles out of court. They don't want to deal with the Supreme Court fallout. And then finally, the, the Kirby gets credit. There's a settlement to the Kirby family. And essentially now the byline in all the Fantastic Four magazines finally say Fantastic Four created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, just like that original byline said the very first issue that came out over 50 years earlier. So that's how that was done. Alex, one curious thing to me as a lawyer was that in the Origins book, when Perfect Film and Chemical is trying to nail down that they own these characters, that part of that official narrative is that Martin Goodman ripped off National Periodical Publications Justice right. League. It's curious that you say you're ripping off another cop to ripping off another publisher's concept in solidifying your own. I can only say either that they felt there was more authenticity in putting in that, that element of taking the idea from somebody else, or maybe it's just true. And there's this, also this interesting directive of, well, Martin Goodman said, create this, so then it becomes his creation. And it's a, it's a funny pattern of, well, if you tell someone to build it and they build it, who created it? So it's a weird concept. So what I wanted to do now, uh, very briefly, is what we've heard is, is voices telling their stories and their narratives. But now we want to look at how history books take those voices and narratives and chooses which ones to go with. And these will be very brief, and then we're going to open it up to talk about the, the legal aspects and the, the silent, the, the quiet voices in the background. Uh, from Captain America, and this is from uh, Tales to Astonish, he basically, the author basically repeats what Simon is saying. One night, Simon set at a sketchboard to design a star-spangled hero whose alter ego was a timid army private in khaki uniform. He wrote the name Super American on the bottom of the first sketch, but immediately changed his mind. Captain America, he wrote over it. Uh, Simon submitted the character design to Goodman with a short note at the bottom. Goodman told Simon, let's do it. We'll give Captain America his own book. Simon mentioned he'd like a piece of the action. Simon had to put a rush on putting it together. When Jack heard Simon had asked artists Al Avison and Al Gabriel, whose work resembled Jack's, to work on the first issue, he asked why. You're still number one, Jack. It's just a matter of a quick deadline for the first issue. Jack said he'd make that deadline. So in this book, it's totally taking Kirby out of the initial construction of Captain America along the lines that Joe Simon did in his biographies and which he was doing as part because of his, his desire to terminate the copyright. 
And in 2004, Men of Tomorrow by Gerard Jones talked about the Cain and Figure situation such as this way. Cain and Finger told different versions of what happened next. Cain, in fact, told several versions himself, the earlier ones excluding Bill Finger entirely. The later ones, under pressure from fans who kept finding more evidence of Finger's involvement, acknowledging a small contribution from a friend. Cain would even go so far as to forge sketches that he supposedly drew in January 1934, quote, at the age of 13, unquote, showing a Batman, a Hawkman, and an Eagle Man inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's sketches of a wing-like flying machine. So he tried to prove not only that Finger hadn't helped him, but that he couldn't even have been inspired by the Birdman and Flash Gordon, which he'd already cited as an influence in interviews. In one absurdly pat document, Kane lied about his age, stole Finger's credit, placed himself in the Renaissance tradition, and nicked a bit of glamour from the man-created Hawkman. Even for Bob, this was a masterstroke of brazenness. So then in uh, The Heroes by Will Jacobs and Gerard Jones, 1985, this is after, well after Origins, but before Jack Kirby's 1990 interview, it says, as history, Joan wanted me to bear down and make something of myself, Stanley says, and her timing could not have been better. Kirby had recently joined the staff, and Goodman asked Lee for the costumed hero team that was similar in conception to the Justice League. And so... What's interesting about that is it, again, furthers that Stanley narrative that he discussed about in Origins. So, Mark, you've been listening. Have you heard the uh, fingerprints of any lawyers in any of, the, uh, any of this? Well, I have a couple of quick anecdotes I can add to, to the dialogue. Okay. In, in the early 1980s, Bob Kane wrote his own biography. And it was a terrible, misogynistic, 900-page mess which he tried to sell and had absolute, got absolutely no traction. He was approached by a fellow named Thomas Andre, Tom Andre, who was a well-known comics historian living in Berkeley. Tom completely reformulated this at Bob's request. He managed to get D.C., which was not really to work with Bob on this, but managed to get D.C. to give him a bunch of illustrations. And, and, he put, and, with, and the book came out, and it was called Batman and Me. And it was uh, Bob Kane with Tom Andre. Later, Bob refused to pay Tom and took the position that Tom was just an editor. And he sued Tom to get a declaration that Tom wasn't a co-writer of work. And I represented Tom. First, they, they sued Tom in Los Angeles, figuring that Tom would roll over pretty easily because he's up in the Bay Area. So we filed a motion to change venue and moved the case up to the Bay Area, and the motion was granted by the court in L.A., at which point I started getting calls from Bob's very concerned lawyer that maybe they were actually going to have to defend themselves. Uh, and they settled the case and paid and started paying Tom. One of the important things, though, that Tom had done in his dialogue with Bob in, in the course of doing Batman and Me is he talked with Bob about the Bill Finger method. Now, this is in the 80s. And Bob said... Oh, you know, I wish I, it, I could have done this differently. I would have given credit to Bill. Subsequently, when the, when the Finger family brought their claims with D.C., the first thing D.C. said was, contractually, we have to give only Bob the credit because his name is on the contract and we couldn't do it any other way. He never said that he acknowledged Bill's uh, contribution. 
they were, the Finger family was able to point to Tom's interview where Bob had said, actually, I would have given him the credit. And that was a key factor in the subsequent decision to give that credit to Bill Finger, which came out about a year or so ago. So that, that's one short thing. Another quick thing I would add is I, I had a chance to talk to Jerry Robinson, who is largely credited with creating Robin. And I asked him about Frederick Wortham in the 1954 book, The Seduction of the Innocent, says that Batman and Robin is a homoerotic relationship. Uh, you know, all these pictures of Robin sitting at Batman's knee, at, at, at Bruce Wayne's knee, and all this sort of thing. And he asked him, was this, you know, well, I asked Jerry, was Jerry, were you creating a homoerotic relationship? And he said, hell no, I based Robin on Prince Valiant movies at the time. And that's why the outfit has the little, the, 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 the particular look of that outfit is based on the Prince Valiant material. So, you know, I guess what, I'm, what, I, what I would comment on is simply that the lens of history in comics in particular has often been influenced by the role of lawyers in, in, in these lawsuits. That, that would be my comment. That's great. Thanks. Uh, so to sum up in, a, in a, just a couple of things, going back to that, that very initial Batman comic where I asked you to think about like what, what the motivations are and why. When, when we're dealing with history books about comics, a few questions. Does the historian, is he obligated to tell both sides or at least to say that there are two sides? That this is what Jack Kirby says, but Joe Simon says something different. When it's done the way it is in the example I read a few minutes ago, where it's simply Joe Simon's version, you're not aware of the, the other aspect. When a historian tells a recanted or revised version, such as how somebody, Jack Kirby, changed his version from what he had said in that affidavit to something quite different later in a Comics Journal interview. Does the historian, should the historian do both the recanted or the, the revised versions so that you, the reader understands that it's not, it's fluid and not one story? Does the historian, and going to the gist of this panel, does the historian owe it to the readers to explore the legal manipulations or the legal background of these statements such that when you're reading it, you realize that it's not necessarily just ego. Stan Lee may have a tremendous ego, but when he wrote this, he was doing it under uh, specific encouragement and requirements by the company to establish that he was the sole creator in order to prevent future lawsuits and, and, and creator uh, demands. Those would be the questions, I think, that one asked when you're looking at a more postmodern notion of multiple narratives in a history book. I want to thank everybody for coming and the panelists all for participating.